So as we come to Hebrews chapter seven, uh, we've, we've been, uh, the author has been making his way toward uh, this point that, that we're coming to today. You remember back in the fifth chapter, he expressed a desire to uh, speak to them and to speak to them specifically about this, this priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. Uh, but then you remember he said, you know, I want to speak to you about this, but you, you become dull of hearing. And then he went into that rebuke and then into the strong warning and, and then into the exhortation all the way through the sixth chapter. So here as we come to chapter seven, he now comes to where he wanted to be able to go the whole time. He comes back around now to addressing uh, the issue of uh, the priesthood of Jesus according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, now remember, again, the context of this letter. This is a, everything in here is very Jewish, obviously. Uh, so for, for these people, they understood the priesthood, they understood Aaron as the, the original high priest, they understood the, the Levites as uh, being the ones who were involved in the priesthood and all the ministry surrounding the, uh, the tabernacle and the temple. They, they understood all of that, but what they wouldn't really get is how, well, how could Jesus be a priest, as the author keeps insisting, when he's not... Uh, connected to the Levitical tribe. And he's not uh, a descendant of Aaron, but yet the author is uh, claiming that Jesus is the high priest. So what he's about to do now is to show that sort of, you know, hidden in the, uh, the, the scriptures and, and they're sort of embedded in their history, there was a, a promise of another priesthood that would arise. And so that's where we pick up in chapter seven, verse one, where he jumps right in and he says, for this Melchizedek. Um, now, maybe you remember we briefly touched on Melchizedek. Uh, he makes one appearance in scripture. At Genesis chapter 14, Abraham comes back from a battle with these uh, certain kings and Melchizedek, who is the, the king of Salem, it says there in Genesis 14, he comes out to meet uh, Abraham and he uh, comes with bread and wine and he blesses Abraham and then Abraham gives a tenth of the spoils to uh, this man Melchizedek. That's the, that's the only uh, reference to him as far as uh, historically and then there's one other mention of Melchizedek, and we read it together this morning in the 110th Psalm. So now he is going to explain, he's going to explain this whole mystery of Melchizedek to the people. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, which would be Jerusalem, ancient Jerusalem, priest of the most high God who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all 
first being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. So Melchizedek means king of righteousness. That's the actual meaning of his name. And he is the king of Salem, uh, ancient Jerusalem, or he is the king of peace. And now he says in verse three, Concerning Melchizedek, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And indeed, those who are the sons of Levi, who received the priesthood, have a command to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he, Melchizedek, whose genealogy is not derived from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So he's going back, he's uh, describing uh, the, the historical account, and he's showing. Now, now remember, One of the author's primary points is to show the superiority of Jesus over everything that preceded him. Now, for for these people, the the Mosaic system was, it was the ultimate thing. In their minds, um, you know, Moses was God's man, and the Levitical system was God's system, and there was no changing that. There was no altering that. That was the mentality among the Jews at the time of Jesus. That's the mentality among Orthodox Jews to this very day. So they're, they're deeply entrenched in this commitment to Moses and to the old system. But the author is at pains to show that that system was temporary. And that it was to be superseded by something greater. And and there was to be a priesthood that would actually exceed the priesthood of Aaron. And it's this priesthood now that he's talking about, the priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. Now, just a few things to uh, say about Melchizedek. Notice here what it says in verse 3 about him. It says... um, It says, he's without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now, because of this statement here, some people have thought that Melchizedek was actually an Old Testament appearance of Christ. So, Um, before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, um, he would appear in human form back in the Old Testament period. The the technical term for that is a Christophany. Christophany means an appearance of Christ before the incarnation. So some people believe that Melchizedek was that. He was a a Christophany. He was an appearance of Christ uh, back 
you know, in the time of Abraham. And they base that on what it says here that he is without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Now, if, if he's talking literally that that is the case with him, then of course you would have to say that that's probably right. Um, but I don't think that that's really the case here. Um, the author, I don't believe the author is saying that he didn't have a father or mother. He didn't have a genealogy. What he's saying is that the, the scriptures intentionally left that um, unexplained. They, they intentionally left it like that because he is, Melchizedek is a type of the son of God. So I think from the Genesis account I think Melchizedek was a real person in history. He wasn't uh, Christ before his incarnation. He was an actual person. Um, But we have no record of his uh, genealogy. We have no record of his birth. We have no record of his death. But, But that was all intentional. So that he could become a type of the Son of God. So, uh, again, there are those who see Melchizedek as uh, an appearance of Christ, I personally don't see it that way. So here he is. He's, he's a man. He's a priest. You know, it's interesting because, um, of course, as we go through the scriptures, we follow uh, God's redemptive plan. And... Um, you know, we go from Noah uh, and, and the sons of Noah. We, we uh, zero in on uh, Noah's son, Shem. And then through Shem, Abraham ultimately comes. And we, we could be tempted at times to mistakenly think that there were no other believers uh, in the world uh, at that time except for the ones that are chronicled for us in the scripture. But the reality is there were other believers and here Melchizedek is a good example. He's a priest of God most high. But we don't know anything else about him. It's sort of like Job. You know, we have the book of Job in the Bible. Uh, Job was, he predated Moses for sure. He probably was a contemporary of Abraham, but he wasn't related. So, you know, in a, in a sense, he would be considered a, a, a Gentile, but he's a man who obviously has a personal, powerful relationship with the true and the living God. So that was the case as well with Melchizedek. How he became priest and all of that, we, we know nothing about that. But he is the priest of God Most High. And Again, the, the point that the author is wanting to make here in showing the, the supremacy of the priesthood of Christ over the Levitical priesthood, he shows how Melchizedek blesses Abraham. And then he says in verse 7, now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. So this mysterious person, Melchizedek, was superior to Abraham, and it was indicated by the fact that he blessed him. And so, verse 11, he comes to the point that he's wanting to drive home. And this is what it is. And and this is the the bigger point of what he's making in the epistle. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, 
What further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change in the law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe, from which no man has officiated at the altar, for it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood, and yet it is far more evident if, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And here's the key, verse 18. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So he's, he's breaking the news to them. The law that you have put so much confidence in, the law that you're actually contemplating going back to is something that God has discontinued. It's annulled. It's no longer uh, the means through which men can connect with God. And not only is that come to pass now, but it was predicted centuries earlier that there would come another priest and another priesthood, and therefore there would come another law, and the whole Mosaic system, the whole Levitical system, would be at a certain point annulled. It would be replaced. The author is saying to them, that has happened today. That's happened in your generation. That's happened through Uh, the coming of Jesus into the world. So their thought, their temptation, you remember, because of the persecution, because of the uh, unfulfilled and unrealized dreams and so forth, uh, because of all of that, they were thinking, well, we'll we'll just go back to Judaism. We'll just settle back in and everything will be nice and comfortable and we'll just resume uh, temple worship and the sacrifices. The author is saying there's nothing there. God is, is finished with that system. It, is, it has been annulled. And so, but he, but he starts in verse 11, like I said, with this question, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest who should arise according to the order of Melchizedek? So you see, in their minds, the, the Levitical system, the priesthood of Aaron, it was all the ultimate. But the author is saying, well, if that was the case, why is God talking in the scriptures about another priest arising at a later date, not coming from the tribe of Levi, not being a descendant of Aaron, but coming from this order of Melchizedek? Why is he talking about that? He's talking about that because that would be the reality that God would establish when Jesus came into the world. And so he says that the law was annulled 
because of its weakness and unprofitableness. Paul, in writing to the Romans in the seventh chapter, he says uh, similar things about the law. And again, remember, as he's saying these things, these are, these are, hard, these are hard truths for, for the, the average Jew to, to receive. Uh, but there, uh, you know, Paul is talking about, um, again, the, the weakness and the unprofitableness of the law. But he wants him to understand that he's not disparaging the law. Of course, it was God's law. And he says this in Romans 7. He says, the law is holy, just, and good. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with me. I can't live up to the standard the law requires. And so it's the same thing here that he's uh, making reference to. The weakness and the unprofitableness of the law is not, the, the fault is not in the law, the fault is in us. We can't live up to that standard. Now, of course, this was the situation for them back then, and their temptation was to go back to the Mosaic system. Uh, we're, to a large degree, I think most of us are very far removed from uh, wanting to go back to the Mosaic system today, but, but sometimes what we do is we drift away from God's grace back under a more of a legal kind of an approach uh, to our relationship with God, thinking that by you know, keeping these certain rules and following these strict guidelines and so forth, that this is going to give us uh, a better standing with God. And nothing could be further from the truth. These, these things are not what uh, commend us to God. What commends us to God is our simple faith in Christ. And of course, as we put our faith in Christ, God places his spirit in us and we live according to God's word because of his power working in us. But whenever we uh, go back in any way to a system that is uh, based upon obtaining God's favor through my good deeds, then I've, I've drifted out of the realm of grace back into legalism and there's, there's no progress. I can't make any forward progress spiritually until I move back into the realm of grace. Um, because whether it's the law of Moses, which was the ultimate law, or any other law, it's weak and it's unprofitable and as he says in verse 19, for the law made nothing perfect. The law made nothing perfect. And that was the, the problem. And now, the further we go into this letter, the more he's gonna delve into these, these problems with the law, the whole, the whole sacrificial system. The, the blood of bulls and goats, he's gonna say at a certain point, could never take away sin. These things were all, they, they were never intended actually, to do that. They were always signposts pointing people ahead to the Messiah who would come and fulfill what these things were talking about. So the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God and inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they, 
the, the Levitical priests, they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek by so much more, listen to that language, by so much more, Jesus has become a guarantee of a better covenant. So this is what he's trying to drive into their heads. Look, Jesus brought in a better covenant. The old covenant was fine for what it was, but it was never intended to perfect us. It was a temporary measure. And its primary, um, the, the two primary purposes of the law, just so we know, Paul states in Galatians, uh, the two primary purposes of the law were, were number one, to, to put a lid on sin, to keep sin from overflowing as it would naturally tend to do. So the law was there to sort of put a lid on sin. But the other purpose of the law was to show us our need for a savior and to point us to Christ. So the law, as Paul says in Galatians, was our schoolmaster to lead us to Christ. But then with the Galatians, he argues, once the schoolmaster gets you to Christ, his job is done. There's no, more, there's no more room for the law. There's no more place for the law. And so with us, once we come to Christ, once we put our faith in Jesus personally, we, we've come into the ultimate experience. We've come into the, the relationship with God that God has desired for us. And now the law has done its part. So we don't bring it over with us. We don't drift back into um, slavish obedience to it. We, we recognize that it, it's accomplished its task. It's brought us to where we could never get on our own. So Jesus has become the surety or the guarantee of a better covenant. And so there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest was fitting for us. Now remember, he has um, spoken to us already about um, the blessings of having uh, a great high priest. He's a high priest who, uh, he can sympathize with our weaknesses. He was in all points uh, tested as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, remember, let us come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy, find grace to help in time of need. So he's been telling us that, but he's just coming back around and uh, reaffirming those same things again and reminding us once again, for we have a high priest, such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners and has become higher than the heavens. So here in a sense, he's contrasting the uh, Jesus as the high priest with the, the earthly high priest. You, they were not necessarily holy uh, they were not necessarily harmless in some cases. You remember it was the high priest that uh, put, uh, passed the death sentence 
on Jesus himself. Um, they were not necessarily undefiled. Many of those priests in that long history were defiled and they were very much sinners, but Jesus, he's separate from sinners. He's become higher than the heavens. So once again, just the, the elevation of Jesus in their minds. There, there's nothing better. There's no improvement. You've got, you've got the ultimate that God has provided in your relationship with Christ. And so... He says, uh, concerning Jesus, who does not need to daily as those high priests offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priest men who have weakness, but the word of the oath, and the word of the oath is the, the passage that's quoted here from Psalm 110. The Lord has sworn, will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So uh, the word of the oath, which came after the law, of course, this was a psalm, uh, many centuries after the law, has appointed the son who has been perfected forever. So a few things just to look at here for a minute in the final verses of the chapter here. And as you notice, those of you, as we've been studying together, you notice that I've picked up the pace quite a bit as we're going through. We were going at a much slower pace uh, before we hit the fifth chapter. But all of these, you know, the, the argument, the logic, it, it flows. And if we, if we break it down too much, we're gonna, we'll miss the, the main message of what he's saying. So I, I, wanna, I want us to be able to um, you know, keep in step with what the author is saying. The, the struggle we have, of course, is we're, we're looking at this once a week. Obviously, we could just take a couple of hours and just go right through it, and we, we would get the, the gist of everything that he's communicating, but because we're doing it once a week over a several-month period, um, it's a little hard sometimes to keep the continuity, but we need to keep the continuity because he's he just continuing to present and to build his case. And as we move into the eighth chapter, which we'll do next week, he then kind of summarizes everything he's been talking about. And I love this here. He says, now this is the main point of the things that we are saying. Do we realize that the, the Bible is full of main points? <laughs> you know, sometimes uh, I, I think especially as, a, as newer Christians, and I know I was like this when I was a young Christian, I didn't so much realize that there were main points that were being made. I just, you know, there were isolated scriptures that spoke to me that I really appreciated and was blessed by, but I never, I never really understood them in their original context. It was great to just pull one out and say, wow, look at this, this, this is powerful, and man, this really speaks to me. Uh, but, you know, as you go on and you study more and you get a better understanding, you realize, oh, okay, well, this, this statement is made in a certain context. So sometimes we can even discover that we didn't understand the actual meaning of a verse because we, we took it out of its context and interpreted it rather than having it in its context. And so it's important to keep things in their context. And as we're seeing, he's, he's making points here. But let me go back and say a couple of things. Now, I want to say something that's completely 
it, in, in a sense, it's unrelated, but it is related. And, um, but I think it's important to say, and it has to do with Mormonism. And, uh, you know, it seems to me, and I, 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 I think this is true with many, and I know it's true with myself as well. Um, you know, in the current situation, we have been so overwhelmed uh, with uh, Islam and with the new atheism and, and all of this that to some degree we've sort of lost sight a little bit of, of some of the other uh, false teachings that are out there that are attracting people and ensnaring people in uh, wrong belief. And uh, even though, you know, there's, I don't know, I, I don't hear too much about Mormonism in the news these days because, uh, well, that one guy that ran for president last time who was a Mormon is not running this time. So, you know, there's not a whole lot of talk about it. But there's still millions and millions of, of uh, Mormons all over the world. And you've probably noticed that they're still very active in their um, efforts to proselytize and to bring people into the, the Church of the Latter-day Saints. And um, while sometimes we are preoccupied with uh, contending against Islam and atheism and so forth, you know, they're still kind of just out there doing their thing and bringing a lot of people into their organization. This seventh chapter of Hebrews is, in my opinion, the best refutation of Mormonism that there is. There's a couple of things that are stated here that really, if you understand Mormonism and if you understand these texts, this is a refutation of their whole system. Now, one of the things that not everybody understands, but it is a fact, Mormonism is built on the idea that it was through Joseph Smith and you know, through this new revelation and so forth that the priesthood of Aaron and the priesthood of Melchizedek were given to Joseph Smith and those that would eventually become the leaders of the Mormon church. So the foundation of Mormonism to this day is built on the idea that they possess the Aaronic priesthood and they also possess the priesthood according to Melchizedek. Here's the problem. According to Hebrews chapter seven, the priesthood according to Aaron no longer exists. It went out of existence completely. So they claim to possess it. God says he annulled it. It no longer exists. Then the other problem is in their claim to possess the priesthood of Melchizedek, of which there are many priests who are of the order of Melchizedek in the Mormon church. According to our text here, the priesthood of Melchizedek belongs to one person only and is not able to pass to a successor. In verse 24, it says concerning Jesus, but he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. And the, the word unchangeable here could better be translated unable to pass to a successor. So you see, when you look at Hebrews chapter seven, 
we learn two things. The priesthood of Aaron is ended, and the priesthood, according to Melchizedek, belongs to one person only, and it cannot pass to anyone else, and that one person that it belongs to is Jesus. So this radically undermines the foundational doctrines of Mormonism. And, you know, you can, like some of you might have done and like I have done on some occasions, you know, you can sit and argue with Mormons back and forth about all different kinds of things about, you know, the validity of the Bible versus the, the books of Mormon and so forth. And you can, uh, you know, argue with them about the angel Moroni and Joseph Smith. And you can argue about all of these things. But in my experience, you usually don't get that far. They want to just you know, continue to argue from a different angle. But also in my experience, when I've, when I've brought this up to them and shown them the seventh chapter of Hebrews, it's, it's pretty much silenced them and they, they have to go back to the drawing board to figure out, okay, how is it that we have this, these two priesthoods as the foundation for our church, but here the biblical text obviously says that one no longer exists and the other belongs only to one person. So that's just a little bit of a side note uh, for you, and maybe that'll be helpful to you uh, the next time you're visited by um, the young Mormon missionaries that go from door to door. But secondly, and primarily, and finally, the thing that we want to just touch on here as we close is verse 25. Therefore, because, he, because his priesthood is unchangeable, because it can't pass to a successor, because it doesn't need to pass to a successor, because he's a priest forever. Therefore, he also is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Here's the great news. Jesus, he's able to save to the uttermost. There's nothing lacking in the salvation that Jesus gives to us. Nothing. There's nothing that needs to be added to it. There's no enhancement necessary. There's, there's no uh, missing component whatsoever. His salvation is absolutely thorough. It's totally complete. There, there's nothing that, that can be added to it. He is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. And this is the beautiful message of the gospel. The New Testament is that Jesus is enough. Jesus is who we need. Jesus is all we need, really. And of course, Jesus has established his church and he's given us his word and all of those things are you know, part of this. But let's never lose sight of the fact that Jesus is our great high priest. We don't need to seek out uh, assistance and salvation from, from any other source. He's able to save completely, thoroughly, to the uttermost those who come to God through him because or since he always lives to make intercession. I was thinking about two things. I'll close with these two things. You are a priest forever. 
according to the order of Melchizedek. All throughout the Old Testament, you have, you have a separation between the priesthood and the monarchy. And God was very specific that these two uh, positions were not to overlap. In other words, you were either a king or you were a priest, but you were not both. But again, through the Old Testament, there were always hints given that that uh, position of the combining of those two offices would be reserved for one person. And that, of course, would be Jesus. Jesus is a priest who sits upon the throne like Melchizedek was. He was the priest of God most high. He was the king of Salem. And so Jesus is our king, but he's also a priest and he's a priest forever. And I was thinking about that. What, what is, what's the significance of that? He's a priest forever. It means that his priestly activity, not that his priestly activity necessarily uh, He's not functioning in that sense. His sacrifice, which was a once forever sacrifice, endures forever. He will always be recognized and known as a priest upon his throne. And the primary role of the priest is to offer sacrifice. What is the sacrifice that Jesus offered? It was the sacrifice of his own life. And so when it says here that he ever lives or he lives always to make intercession for us, the intercession that he's making is the intercession that has come through his blood. His blood has interceded on our behalf. His blood has washed away our sins. His blood continues to wash away our sins and continues to give us that place of favor before God and access to God. But don't forget this. He always lives to make intercession for us. The chief occupation of Jesus is to take care of you and me and his people. That's his chief occupation. He doesn't have another job, so to speak. He's not busy doing a million other things. So there might be times when he's not able to get to us or to assist us or, you know, unintentionally might be negligent of us because, you know, after all, it's a big universe out there. He's got a lot of things going. He's got a lot to do. Um, There's one primary thing that Jesus is all about, and that's making intercession for us. You know, sometimes people say, well, you know, I I don't want to burden the Lord with my problems. You know, that's an impossibility. You, You can't burden the Lord with your problems. God can't be burdened. He ever lives to make intercession. He, that, that's what he does. That's what he desires to do. That's what he longs to do. And that's why we're invited, once again, as we've already read earlier, we're invited to come to the throne of grace. The invitation is there, come. And when we come, 
We don't find a throne that's vacant. We don't find a, uh, a sign on the door that says, uh, you know, back in 15 minutes, we come and, and he ever lives to make intercession for us. He's there for us. And he wants us to come to him. This is, this is his whole his whole life as our, as our high priest. And as we're going to see later, as our, the great shepherd of the sheep. All of these images are, are there to just remind us of God's great love and care for us. And to um, bid us to come and cast our cares upon him. Because he cares for us. And so, let's do that. Lord, we thank you for these great promises. And Lord, it's amazing to think that you live to make intercession for us. Lord, it's astounding when we stop and think about it. We think about how David, as he pondered that, he just asked that question, what is man that you were mindful of him? When we consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have ordained, Lord, we're we're just baffled at your care for us. But you do care for us, and we thank you for that. And may we not lose sight of that. And Lord, may we steer away from drifting back into legalistic approaches to you. And may we just continue to come boldly to the throne of grace where you're seated as our king. There always and ever to make intercession for us. Thank you, Lord, that we can cast our burdens on you. And I just pray for those that came in this morning burdened in some way. Lord, help them to lift that burden Well, not even to lift it themselves, but Lord, just lift it off of them. And we thank you that you do that, that that's your heart. That you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Lord, we rejoice in that. And may the the deeper realities of that, may they just impress us as we go this week, we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together.